Ephesians chapter 2, page 1818 in the Bench Bibles, where we'll read the verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then the next three verses are our text. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. These very words of God. I'm well aware, and maybe some of you are too, that the great synod of Dort in the Netherlands began meeting in November of 1618, which was 400 years ago, and gave us one of the three so-called Reformed confessions that we hold as biblically true, the canons of Dort. Now, we won't have a sermon on the canon so much, but I'm the sort of person who probably, if you were to catch me right in the center of my interest, it would be leading adult Sunday school after church or church school where many people would come, and not only come, but come with their questions and come with their discussion. There's something about our Christian life. Sermons are fine. I'm not criticizing them. But fellowshipping together around the Bible and around the Reformed confessions is a good thing. When I did my doctoral work, I remember the Reformers emphasized strongly church in the morning. They didn't have church at night in those days. That came in later. It was 
You know, not good lighting and cold, not good heat and so in Reformation times. But the reformers said, look, our people must not be ignorant. They've got to know. No may not save you alone. True faith, the reformers said, is knowledge. It begins with knowledge. And along with knowledge, you assent to it. And along with assent, you trust. And it's a trust that shows in the way you live. That's what the reformers said true faith was. And their application of that way of thinking was, the reformed churches need this. We come to worship God. The preacher chooses his text freely in what he thinks God has laid upon him that week. And then we have church school for all ages. Not only the children, but all ages, including adults. And you get together and you discuss the word. People come with their questions and you answer them as well as you can. That was the theory in Reformation times and I'd fit right in. And it's in that background that we get our Reformed confessions. They love the Heidelberg Catechism. And then the Canons of Dort, which dealt with a doctrinal dispute. Well, thinking that through in November, I tried to sort of come to grips in my own mind with what I thought Dort was getting at. And the one word I came up with was grace. It's a simplification to say Dort was concerned with grace, I know. But I think it's quite accurate, though perhaps too simple. And if I were to choose one text to sort of give an overview of the point of what Dort is all about, I would choose the text we have for this evening. So, let's get into it. We'll open up the text my favorite way, which is sort of to go through it word by word and emphasize some important things in it. We can't touch everything, but let's start with verse 8 and go on. We read there in verse 8, 4, and the question is, what is the for there for? And the answer is that word for is summarizing everything up to verse 8 in chapter 2 of Ephesians. For it is by grace. Now, we'll stop there a minute. I'd like you to understand grace, but I also want you to feel it. Let's start with understanding. Grace is an attribute of God. God is gracious and merciful. And if you distinguish grace and mercy, they really are pretty much overlapping con uh, words with content uh, that's so similar. Grace would be God's favorable attitude toward his people, and mercy would be his favorable actions that follow upon his attitude. But the two are one, two sides of one coin, a gracious, merciful God. Grace is sometimes described for us with an alliteration, God's riches at Christ's extent, and that's a good definition again. Another one is God's radical and complete embrace. But I want to try to tell you a story I actually have in my notes that I told this to you a couple years ago, but that's okay. And I remember some basic things myself over and over again, and uh, 
don't expect you to remember sermons if you do good, but you don't remember what you ate two years ago this night either. So uh, 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 sort of just summarize here a little bit. My friend Paul Hahn, H-A-H-N, he uh, told me at First Minneapolis Church when they called me and we visited up there, he says, yeah, he says, I'm not Dutch, but I married a Dutch person, for better or for worse. <laughs> and he left it up to me to guess which. <laughs> but anyway, I knew right away Paul and I would hit it off good if we got to know each other better. Uh, but then a, a few years later, Paul had an article published in the banner telling about something in his life. Paul was a biker, bicyclist one, as I was then and still am to an extent. And um, the story was about when he was biking on a bike trail in Minneapolis. He told me they had excellent bike trails there. And um, one day he was biking on it, and he came to the walking part of the trail. And as he was biking on the walking part, all of a sudden there was a big dog on the trail in front of him. And uh, the dog didn't move, and he couldn't change direction, and he hit the dog, and he fell off the bike into the soft soil. It had been raining, and the soil there was kind of soft, and uh, was aware that he was face down on the ground. When he got up, he was also aware that he didn't hurt in his neck or anywhere else. And he also became aware that with every breath, something stunk. And uh, in Paul's words in the Banner article, he called it Fido's indiscretion. He thought of a better word than I think I could have. <laughs> this is true, by the way. This was published in the Banner. Well, Paul lost it. He was very angry. The dog's owner was sitting there with an empty doggy bag in his hand, <laughs> as of yet. And, and, and this was the beginning of the time when people said, I'll sue you, you know. And uh, that's got worse since then. But Paul said to the dog owner there, who looked abashed and embarrassed, I want your name. I want your address. You're going to pay for everything, including a doctor visit and any injury. And if there is anything significant, I'll sue you. The man said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll give you everything in my billfold. I'll show you my license. They did that. He said, I'm unemployed. You won't get much from me, but I am so, so sorry. Now, Paul went home. And his temper tantrum ended. And Paul thought, well, wait a minute here. I'm a Christian, and I certainly was not very gracious to that man. And when I think about it, God has been gracious to me. And I know that in my sin I stink before God. And the God of all grace, who's been gracious to me, shouldn't I be gracious? I was embarrassed in what I fell in, but I wasn't hurt. I'm not hurt now. Paul got the phone number of this particular man, called him up and said, I'm sorry for being so ungracious to you. I am not going to do 
any of these lawsuits. I don't need to go to the doctor. There's going to be no damage in your life. And I want you to know that. I believe in God who was gracious to me when I stunk in sin. And I'm going to be gracious to you. That's grace. The fact is, in our sin, we do stink before God. And the fact is that God is gracious to deal with us and help us and care for us and show, as the definition says, a favorable attitude toward us. Now with that word picture, I want you to feel, I think, what the apostle is getting at in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And we will go on with other words, obviously not all this much in depth. But before I do, I think it's fair to say that the canons of Dort have as their deepest motivation helping us to understand the God of all grace. Some of you probably know the five points of the canons. Years ago, we used to be more into doctrine. I still wish we were, you know, but um, uh, in fact, one of my wishes is that Reformed people were, were more doctrinally alert. And I know that many of you are. You're above average, I'm sure, amongst church members. But those five doctrines that got summarized later in the so-called tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. If you start with total depravity, God in his grace comes to us as depraved or depraved people. And depravity, by the way, means inclination to sin. We like to sin. Kind of fun to sin. Not that everything we do is sinful, but total depravity. We're depraved through and through and inclined to all sin. God's grace comes to us. Unconditional election. There's no good condition in us. We can't say to God, elect me because I'm such a goody-goody. See, unconditional election. Again, God's grace is there. God chooses for his own reasons to work graciously in his people. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. I'd never make a big deal about this doctrine in the sense of argue with people who call themselves four-point Calvinists, but the point of limited atonement is Christ made atonement or at one man on the cross for his people. He didn't waste it on those who weren't his people. Enough sit on that for this evening. Irresistible grace. It's not the best name for it, maybe. Powerful grace. God needs to give his grace because if God didn't come with his grace first, we'd be like a bunch of cockroaches in a house. We'd run from the light. See, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. God doesn't quit on his people, doesn't give up on them. It's all an outflow, in my judgment, of God's grace. Now, with all of that said, let's go on in the text and pick up some other highlights. 
For it is by grace you have been saved. The word saved is used in the Bible and today, both in a secular sense and religious. Secular sense, boxing, sometimes in a boxing match, they're saved by the bell. You probably heard that expression. The use here, of course, is the religious sense. Saved from sin, death and hell, to Righteousness, life, and heaven. Putting those six words together, we're saved from sin to righteousness, from death to life, and from hell to heaven. That's the essence of salvation. And I do agree with Charles Haddon Spurgeon, every sermon should have a call to salvation. If you're not one of the saved, believe tonight. The Reformer's definition is so good. Knowledge, assent, trust. Get to know God better. And when you know God and know the basics about God, you don't have to know everything about God, but you've got to know the basics and the truth. When you know God, the next step is to say, I assent, I agree with what the Bible says. I now know about God. I assent. And then the word Trust. Read one, I read a great article the last couple of weeks. Just give me a minute or two on this. It said Westerners have a hard time understanding faith for this reason. We tend to abstract instead of put into life. And so you get a definition of faith like trust, and you got all these people saying, sure, I got faith, and all they mean is God exists. They'll say I trust God, but it doesn't show in their life. The article was by a missionary in Eastern cultures, and he said, an Easterner would intuitively understand that you don't just take a concept and abstract it irrelevant to your life. You understand that when you understand the concept, you more than understand, you also walk it. You walk your talk. Reminded me of R.J. Rushdoony years ago. He's been dead since 2002, but he was explaining faith to the Indians where he was a minister in Nevada, his first charge. And he was telling them what faith was. And uh, afterward, uh, the, the chief said to him, now you ride home with me. Um, and Rush Dooney says, oh, <laughs> is the river hard enough? It was this time of year. Ice hard enough on the river? Rush Dooney was scared that when they went over it, it was horse and buggy days yet back then, they'd sink in. The Indian chief said, you told us about faith. And the faith should be in God. If you have faith in chief, when chief says we can go on the ice, you trust the chief. And they rode over the ice on the river, and it didn't break. See, you trust in God and entrust your life to him. That's what the article was getting at, which is intuitive to an Easterner, and the missionary said is not to a Westerner, and therefore you get this empty talk, I believe in God, I trust in him. No, by grace you have been saved, you trust God, and you live for him. That's why I chose the song, Trust and Obey. 
Now, looking at the text again. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. The way that word gift of God is explaining what grace is all about. And again, the point of the canons of Dort is about our salvation as God's gracious gift, folks. Enough said. We'll go on to verse 9. Not by works, so that no one can boast. These words probably hark back to Christ Jesus. He's the one who saved us. God saves us through Christ. That was a big point in the first seven verses here. Another story that stuck with me over the years. True, by the way. Uh, There was an old Roman artifact. You could look this up online. Don't do it now. It's going to be obvious. Wait till after church. But (laughs) not good news if the minister tells you to get out your phone and look up something in the middle of the sermon, is it? But you could look it up. I did because uh, when I was young, we used to have these, you know, books of minister stories. And as I get older, I found out some of them that are said to be true are not true. So nowadays I look up things before I mention them. But you could uh, verify this one. The Portland uh, V-A-S-E. Some people say it vase and others say it vase. And I'm used to vase, so that's what I'll say. But anyway, there's this beautiful Roman artifact from pre Christian days, pre-Christ days, uh, a Portland vase, beautiful uh, art on it, well-preserved. And it was in England, and it was in a museum in England. And there was a man who became an enemy of the king, and he wondered how he could get revenge on the king. And he knew that one of the most valuable ancient artifacts owned by the realm was this Portland vase. And so he went into the museum in the days before they had guards and unbreakable glass cases and things like that. And he smashed the vase to pieces, hundreds of pieces. And, of course, they found it soon enough. And the king was sad about it. And he put out a notice, is there anyone who can put the vase back together? And the answers he got was there is only one person in the whole realm who is skilled enough to put this vase back together so that it'll look reasonably like it did before it was smashed. The Portland vase was put back together again, and today is beautiful, though there is evidence of the smashing, which I believe happened in the 17 or 1800s. And that story reminds me of the Christ. We talked about Christ this morning, the anointed one who's able. Christ Jesus is the one who puts us back together, folks. And that's why Ephesians 2, 9 says, not by works. We can't. Get our act together enough so that we can put ourselves together enough in order to 
recover from our own sin. It's Christ who does it. And if you look at us, we are God's valuable people. I, I continue to be amazed every time I read of something new in the universe. A huge universe God made. Trillions upon trillions of planets. Suns, moons, stars, everything working in perfect order. Here in December, we're going toward, you know, the side of Earth's wiggle so that it's the darkest days. Just incredible design. I can't even imagine a human who could do it. And I certainly can't imagine that it would happen by chance or accident. I'll never forget the man in one of my former churches who gave me the great big ball bearing to use for an illustration. And the point of the great big ball bearing was that evolution can happen, no matter, can't happen. No matter how many trillions of years, this, evo, this big ball bearing doesn't just come, come into existence by itself. And when you've died, Pastor, it won't have changed one bit in this case in what I put it. Now there was sanctified common sense being applied by a man who understood the ways of God. That's what it was, see? And God made this just incredible world. And of all of the amazing creatures God made, and the living creatures, some of them with skills we don't have. Your dog can smell better than you can. Some say 60, some say 600 times. An eagle can see better than you can. Some say six times, others say eight times. Of all of the things God made, all of the... Um, sensitivities that he gave to different creatures in this creation. All of that, only one thing God made, human beings is made in his image to know him. Knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. That's how we're different from the animals. That's how we're a little lower than God. Our dogs can't get to know God. We can. How sad if we don't do it righteousness. So a snake bites you. That snake isn't sinning. He's just defending himself. But when we do something to kill, it's unrighteous. Humans are right before God or wrong before God. Holiness. We're worshiping now. There's not a creature in all creation that can worship the God who made them except humans, see? What an amazing thing. But we can't save ourselves. We need Christ to save us. And the absolutely awesome fact is that when humans fell into sin, God sent his son, his only son, his one and only son, to save us from our sins. And that's why it says, not of works so that no one can boast. The salvation is from God. And then verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God's workmanship there. The Greek word is one of the relatively few Greek words that does come into the English language as poem. The Greek word is poema, and the English becomes poem. And the point is that God has made us 
the poetry of his creation. Now I know that many people are not into poetry these days and the image may not speak as loud as we want it to. Poetry is supposed to be language. God gave humans the ability to have language. Animals sort of do. Dogs bark, pigs snort, etc. But God gave us the gift of language. Beautiful. And made us his special works. A poem is supposed to be a special work. A special work. That's what's being get at, getting at here. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. You want to hear that phrase carefully. God created human beings in Adam and Eve. And he recreates, in a sense, through Christ Jesus. Here's a little theological thing that's going on amongst the experts. And uh, I pay special attention to it because I think there's a point that's well made. The reformers kind of emphasized that God's basic essential work was righteousness, making right people who were wrong with him. And that's an excellent point. The only thing is, I'm not sure we want to go in the direction of saying any one work is the one basic work. In our time, there's a sort of a new trend in theology led by a very, very brilliant professor from England who's saying the main point of the New Testament probably is our union with Christ. And I, I think that has to be listened to. I remember a Reverend Steve Schlichel years ago, a Jewish Christian Reformed pastor, saying the main point of the New Testament, if you want to make one thing the main point, is that Christ is a second Adam. And as one text says, for you are his new creation in Christ Jesus. Uh, that union with Christ thing is a little hard for us to understand. We're in union with the United States, we're citizens. When we get in our car, we're in union with the car. Where the car goes, we go too. It's not impossible to understand. But it's a main point. Paul always talks about Jews and Gentiles being in union together. So I don't want to fight. If you want to say the main point of the New Testament is righteousness, fine. If you want to emphasize union with Christ, fine. I wish these theologians wouldn't do these either-or things. But when our text says this, Ephesians 2.10, where God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, the point is that in Christ Jesus, God is recreating, refashioning the human beings he made beautiful in his first creation. And why do so? He doesn't save us to take us to heaven immediately. He saves us for some purpose on planet Earth. And we know that if we're living, we have purpose. And Ephesians 2 gets at it this way. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God mentioned what good works were in his Bible. Now, what the point that's being made here is, faith, yes, we'll go back further than that. God's grace, yes. 
God's grace through Jesus Christ, yes. God's grace through goody-goody us, no. God's grace through our faith in his grace through Jesus Christ, yes, yes, yes. And now that we have that grace, what's next? We become beautiful again like we were made to be because of our union with Christ Jesus. And we have the privilege of doing good works. That's our text, folks. Now you have to understand good works God's way. Good works is explained so good in our Reformed Confessions. I think you folks understand the role of works in the Christian life better than most denominations. Heidelberg Catechism, Sin, Salvation, Service, or Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. We do good works not to save ourselves, but because God has saved us, we are his workmanship. See? And we keep God's law, as Lord's Day 12 that we read this morning says, as well as we can in light of a biblically informed conscience. That's what we do. And there are many other ways we can emphasize good works. Here are a few of them. Summary of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Another one. The golden rule, Matthew 7, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Another one, Galatians 6.10, and let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not faint. Another one. Lordship of Jesus, he's the ruler of my life. So sad years ago in the Baptist tradition when some of them were maintaining that you can believe in Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. One of their own, John MacArthur, maybe some of you listened to him, one of the great preachers of our day, wrote a book lambasting that bad theology. And MacArthur was good, and happily they quit saying, you can have Jesus as Savior, but not Lord. The Bible says if you have Jesus as Savior, he's also your, your Lord or the ruler of your life. That's how to be his workmanship. And so the challenge to you tonight, folks, and with this I will conclude, and that challenge actually is several parts. Remember that I think a sermon should include information, this one has had some review, but I hope there's enough information that you understand Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 better and maybe understand what the canons of Dort are getting at better. Information. Transformation. If your life needs to change, please change. If you need to become a Christian, do so. If you need to renew your commitment to Christianity, Please do so. Transformation. Appreciation. I would love you to appreciate the big God Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 is talking about. And then go out this week. You've had your Sunday. You've got Monday to Saturday. Think of this week as a time to be a beautiful poem for God 
you know very well that if you don't consider yourself all that handsome or cute or you're getting along in years and got gray hair like me, you can be beautiful spiritually. You know that, of course. We listen to these women's magazines. It's all about looking good physically. But it's much more important to look your best spiritually. Go out this week thinking of yourself as God's poem and asking how you can be beautiful for God and how you can do godly works with the life God gives you. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, thank you for this great text. We sense it's great. We sense it's sort of conclusion and summary. And we rejoice in the word of the Lord, including Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. And we pray now that we may, having heard this text opened up, see you a little better and see your call upon our lives a little more clearly. Amen.